Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. This season of Things Not Seen is sponsored in part by Loyola University's Institute for Pastoral Studies. Find out more at luc.edu slash ips. From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, we explore our culture of little white lies and convenient truths, and we ask what damage they might be doing to our souls. We talk with Stuart Brody, the author of The Law of Small Things, Creating a Habit of Integrity in a Culture of Mistrust. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Stuart Brody. He's the founder of Integrity Intensive, a consulting firm concentrating on decision-making, leadership training, and the practice of integrity. His 35-year career as a lawyer took him before the Supreme Court, and he's held leadership positions in the Democratic Party and numerous public offices. He's advised presidential candidates as well. His speeches and workshops have brought his work to thousands of public officials across the country. Today, we're discussing his recent book, The Law of Small Things, Creating a Habit of Integrity in a Culture of Mistrust. Stuart Brody, welcome to Things Not Seen. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you, David. This book seems to be a guidebook for ethics. Do I have that right? I think you do. Uh, It can certainly be described that way. I chose a broader title, the word integrity, because I thought it connoted something a little bit more expansive than ethics. The genesis of this book was during my career as a lawyer and also as a politician. And I began to recognize that the very institutions that I was serving, law and politics, were fraught with breaches of integrity. But it wasn't just other people committing those breaches. I was committing them too. Uh, I got caught up in just the momentum of those professions, uh, including the exorbitant uh, self-interest that that seems to motivate professionals in both those areas. And I uh, really had to look hard at what I was doing and why I was doing it, and essentially, really, what was the meaning of my involvement in the world. Was it more motivated by self-interest and self-aggrandizement or contribution? And as I started to turn to the latter, I got out of those, I got out of law and politics and went into teaching and then ultimately lecturing, consulting, and I still teach and write, of course. For those that have never practiced law, for those that have never been in politics, what is it like to be in the middle of that? And what does it do to your soul, if I may ask? Well, uh, let's take politics. You know, that's obviously very relevant now because we're all observing it and trying to figure out what's going on and where we stand in the whole thing. But I think 
The problem with politics is that it lends itself to very rigid belief. People are organized around beliefs. And the problem with that is that it tends to get rigidified and it coalesces really around blame. So when you think about what a belief is, I'm not going to be talking about religion right now. I suppose we're going to get into that, David, a little bit more. But political belief, as I said, tends to be oriented around blame. You think about what a belief is. It's a judgment that we hold about something and we hold it as true. And we get perplexed when somebody has a contrary view. And then that bewilderment turns to defensiveness and then blame. So belief, that's not true of everyone, but that tends to be the common trajectory of strong belief, blame. So I don't think it comes as any surprise to your audience that the politics of blame is now rampant as a result of really rigid belief. Your basic argument, if I could sum it up, is that if we practice little virtues, we will be prepared when we are called upon to be courageous and bold on the big things. First of all, do I have that correct? That's pretty close. Very good. And, and so with that, let's talk a little bit about what some of those small virtues are. One of the ways that you organize the book is looking at the things that can take us off course. And so, for example, you talk about the illusion of inconsequence, the notion that some things are just not important to worry about, like white lies or, or little peccadilloes that we might get into. But then you also talk about convenience, and that's actually where I want to dig in, this notion that somehow, well, I feel okay about it. It's not really harming anybody, and therefore it must be okay. Let's talk for a moment about convenience. Okay. How is convenience... I mean, our entire lives are modeled around convenience. They're organized around making the world more convenient for us. Why is convenience bad? When you turn ethics into a vehicle of convenience, well, then what you start to do is cut corners on obligations to other human beings. Integrity, when it's reduced to its essence, is really the, the story of discerning and fulfilling promises. Now, there are explicit promises that are clear to us, like promising to show up for a lunch date, okay? Now, we do use the white lie to get out of it, right? And, and we'll, you know, we've, you mentioned that. But then there are a lot of promises that are implied. And those are the ones that we need to spend time with. The, the problem with looking at at integrity or ethics as a convenience is that when you don't make an explicit promise, it becomes very easy to ignore. So it's convenient to pad an insurance claim or to write a overly generous letter of recommendation for a friend, okay, to maybe shade your taxes a little bit. It's convenient for politicians to say, well, I'll only run two terms and then change their minds. It's convenient for corporations to say, your call is very important to us. And so what happens in this culture of convenience is that everybody starts drifting into lies, falsehoods. We put euphemisms on it, but it's basically that. Now, that is dangerous, and dangerous, I want to I wanna unpack what we mean by dangerous. Do we mean dangerous to other people or dangerous to us, to our souls, to, 
to our self-worth? Where's the danger? So there's, okay, so that's a great question. And I think there's danger in two clear and identifiable ways. The first danger is that you're, you don't take your word very seriously because you're willing to compromise it in convenience or in consequence. Okay. So then you might say to someone, let's have lunch. I can't wait to see you. Let's, let's get together soon. Okay. And you have no intention of doing that. It's just something you say. What that does is start to habituate yourself in the looseness of language. You become habituated into um, really lying because you're saying things you don't mean. The problem with that is that if it were isolated just with you, well, you might be a little bit of a reprobate and people might start recognizing it. But when we start excusing politicians for doing that or religious leaders, then we're talking about infecting the entire fabric of our culture, our spiritual culture and our political culture. And... That, I believe, could, it could be accurately said, is going on right now in, in, uh, you know, in fairly serious dimensions. However you stand on, on your position about Trump, President Trump, it's still a question that we're all wrestling with. What's the role of truth? But the reason we're wrestling with it is because we haven't been uh, accustomed to generating structures of trust. In fact, we've been tearing them down. And I gave you some of those examples, and there's so many more. I mean, the whole book is about that, how in small ways we disassemble the foundation of trust upon which we all depend on for being able to relate, communicate with others. Once trust breaks, well, then you're lost. Well, so the word that you keep coming back to again and again in the book, throughout the book, is the word duty. And I'd be interested, just as we're starting this conversation, for you to tell our listeners what you mean when you use this term, duty. What does it mean for you to say that one has an obligation to the truth? What is duty? I expect that your listeners, because they're your listeners, understand that duty is, is a powerful concept, something important because it reflects the sense of mission that an individual has toward another human being. There's no duty to, to have a diet, you know, or to um, watch a certain TV show, unless you've promised someone to do that. But duty is the connection between yourself and the promises you make and other people, and that's the foundation of trust. So a duty is really the requirement to fulfill a promise, So I just want to emphasize that because that's the structure, in essence, that I've established. You have explicit promises. I'm going to meet you for lunch. I'm going to show up to do this interview. I'm going to return the borrowed book on January 30th, just like you told me to. Okay. Then you get into the implied ones. Well, I'm not going to white lie, you know, because I have an implied promise of truthfulness to you. I'm not going to buy a stolen good on a street corner. Okay, I'm not going to breach a copyright just because it's easy, convenient. I'm going to pay for for my public radio because I can afford it and I listen and they need the money and they said that and they can't exist without it. Those are implied promises. And explicit promises and implied promises create duties to fulfill those promises. So we have 31 chapters, each with a story about 
on the implied promise. There are very few explicit promises, maybe one or two chapters. It's all about seeing your duty in the complexity of life and resisting the conveniences of ignoring them. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Stuart Brody about his recent book, The Law of Small Things, Creating a Habit of Integrity in a Culture of Mistrust. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Stuart Brody. He's an attorney and has worked for the Democratic Party, has been a politician, and he is now a consultant on the subject of integrity. We're talking about his recent book, The Law of Small Things, Creating a Habit of Integrity in a Culture of Mistrust. So back in the 17th century, I guess late 17th century, early 18th century, during the time of slavery here in the United States, there was a man by the name of John Woolman, and he was a Quaker. And one of the things that Woolman is famous for, or maybe infamous for, depending on your fashion sense, he refused to wear clothing that was dyed any color because the dyes that were used for the fabrics were brought over on the same ships that brought over slaves. Mm. And his belief was that if he was against slavery, he had to be against everything that was attached economically to slavery. And so I want to take a moment and ask you about John Woolman and the limits of integrity, because that's a pretty extreme example. When we look at someone who is willing to completely reorder their life for the sake of a principle, is that how far you want your readers to go? Or where would you set the limit on the kind of integrity and duty that you're asking of the people that pick up your book? Well, um, you know, there's something to be said for kicking off a radio segment with one of the most difficult questions. You <laughs> it's, uh, it's somewhat daunting. I think the best way to approach that is to point out that the title of the book is The Law of Small Things. So we are talking about what's right in front of us, the things that constitute our daily lives, the ways that we dismiss the obligation to adhere to truthfulness. You know, truthfulness is a term that we throw around. You know, we say do the right thing and so forth. But truthfulness is not just being afraid of getting caught, so you want to tell the truth. But it's a, it's a resource for authenticity. Think about that. We all want that. We all have glimpses of authenticity. We, we strive for it, and they're very rare. Now, I don't know this individual, 
Mr. Wallman, we'll yeah. call him. John Wallman. I've, ne- I've never heard of him. But what he's done, it sounds to me like he's done, is to fix on an aspect of his life that he can't control and make it authentic. He's organized his life around a regimen of authenticity. Now, the question is, by engaging in that, you called it a belief, uh, I, and maybe that was just the ease of reference. I'm not sure it was a belief, we could call it that, but it was a structure of making a commitment to a duty of justice, a part of his life, uh, and to make it such a part of his life that everything seemed to connect to it. And so he had that kind of uniformity. And I think we tend to really value people like that. You know, people who see something unique and others recognize it as a serious commitment, a commitment of integrity. The question is, by taking it to that degree, do you risk ignoring other obligations? And if that's the case, if, if there is that trade-off, one of the things that we might talk about is a mechanism by which we can begin to judge where those trade-offs can be made or if those trade-offs should be made. But you, you mentioned something a moment ago about duty and the recognition of duty, and that draws to mind that within your book, The Law of Small Things, you actually lay out five types of duty. You say that we have the duty of civility, the duty of community, the duty of loyalty, the duty to preserve life, and the duty of truthfulness. Those seem pretty comprehensive. I would imagine that one of the things that Woolman would have been playing with would be a duty to community and a duty to preserve life. But when we're faced with that, and I guess this is this is maybe a simpler way to ask the, the question that I asked earlier, and I appreciate your indulgence in that rather, it's a whopper of a question. But think of it in a more contemporary example. So we hear sometimes about sweatshops where our clothing is made, or we, we drink coffee and sometimes we want to drink fair trade coffee. So these are conveniences for us, cheap clothing, very tasty beverages. But by having those conveniences, we've kind of offshored the inconvenience and we've taken some pain and suffering and put it somewhere else, maybe thousands of miles away. And so I guess a better way of asking the question that I tried to ask with that earlier question is, is there a limit to the geographic space of this duty? Is there a limit to how responsible we should feel, not only to those that we may be breaking a lunch commitment with, but to those who may be suffering for the sake of our convenience, even though we may never meet them? Well, um, I have a feeling that that question was rhetorical, because of course we do. Uh, Who was it, Mother Teresa, who said that it's not just the pollution of the river behind your house that you need to be concerned about, but the loss of life resulting from the pollution of the river in Calcutta. Now, that's a very, very difficult standard to live up to. And as a result, we conveniently dismiss it. But I love your expression about offshoring uh, integrity. We have an obligation to really pay attention to our actions. Just because the culture makes it easy for us to ignore these duties of integrity, uh, that doesn't mean that we should make it even easier on ourselves and follow that lead and ignore it. In fact, the person of integrity is someone who is merciless in the search for truth. So that's maybe a controversial statement, but 
if I were listening to myself on the air, I would say, well, what does it mean to be merciless? Well, it means that in every context that you have, whether it's your family, your neighbors, the, the office water cooler, the corporate boardroom, or the, the political arena, you have an obligation to consider the implications of your actions, not just on the one person that you may have made an explicit promise to, but impliedly. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Stuart Brody about his recent book, The Law of Small Things. You are a consultant who works with politicians and you also work with the heads of corporations. When you say to them something like what you just said to me, what is their reaction? Well, I think people really want to have it both ways. So we get back into what's an explicit promise. That's the easiest one. Okay, return the library book. Uh, I'll show up for a meeting. I will put my kids through college if I'm able. I will visit my mother-in-law once a week. Uh, you know, the basic stuff. And I'll go to church every week. And I make promises to do that, and I do it. And that's, the, that's good to fulfill your promises. The harder thing is to understand that be behind that that, that, that terrain of visible promises is a much greater terrain, like the tip of the iceberg kind of thing, underneath which, which is the underpinning. So the answer to your question is corporate leaders are often not going to want to look at that. I mean, does Apple have an obligation to refrain? I should put that affirmatively. Does it have an, uh, any kind of obligation to the country in which it is situated, in which it is incorporated, in which most of its employees are present? Or, because they can do this lawfully, is it okay to take $73 billion a year and park it offshore? That is a question that every corporate leader has to, has to answer. But since it's lawful, they're not accountable to anyone for that. But that would be corporate irresponsibility, in my view, because it breaches the integrity to the community in, that, is, that is nourishing your children, educating them, providing homes and security for your corporate executives and so forth. You know, do, does a corporation have a duty of integrity to issue a mission statement that's accurate? Or because everybody else is doing it, why not just, you know, issue some meaningless thing with a lot of verbiage? Now, it's true. They don't want to confront that. Uh, but, or how about, I mean, it just goes on and on, David. How about a company that knows of, that it has a sexual harasser in its midst, but that person is a key employee, the biggest income source for the firm, and you do nothing? Well, it, there's something to be said about balancing certain duties. There's a loyalty to your stockholders, to your employees, and to, to maintain the profitability of a company that sustains hundreds of employees. But if at the same time that means ignoring the rights of women, for instance, uh, whose rights are being violated by a sexual harasser, well, that's a, a, the violation of a duty. So corporate America, just like the government of the United States, Congress, let's say, has to take a very strong look at what its implied duties are, and they don't really want to do that. But it's not going to change until they do, or until we, the people, 
uh, make them change. So that's really the challenge. That's the gauntlet. They're going to reflect our own casual way of looking at duty. Because if they can get away with just one one example, you know, I can't resist. A politician says that he's going to run two terms. That's it. Makes the promise. And then says, well, there's unfinished work. Okay. I've got to run three. Gets elected. As a people, we have no business voting for anybody who does that. And because, yet that happens all the time. And yet it happens all the time. Yeah. We have no business voting for someone who lies rampantly. So anybody who's using negative advertising, which is a form of lying, right? There are quotes on that. Uh, nothing's worse. Nothing beats uh, a lie as, as much as a truth that's told with ill intent. That's a quote. You know, but we reward those people. Now, if we stop doing that, guess what would happen? Those practices would stop. That's a long way of answering, yes, I go into the belly of the beast and I say, look, you can tell the truth and gain the trust of customers, of employees, of stockholders. You don't have to hide this. You think you do, but you don't because people want integrity and truthfulness more than they want anything else. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Stuart Brody about his recent book, The Law of Small Things, Creating a Habit of Integrity in a Culture of Mistrust. We'll be back in a moment. Hey, folks, this is David. Thank you for listening, and thank you for supporting the work that I do. As you're probably aware, in addition to this show, I help produce a number of other programs about culture and faith. One of them is the Commonweal podcast, produced by my friends over at Commonweal magazine. For almost a century now, Commonweal has staked a claim for Catholic principles and perspectives in American life and for lay people's voices within the church. Their podcast features a wide spectrum of voices discussing art, politics, religion, and civil society. Each episode offers three or four segments that amplify the pages of the print magazine and move into new frontiers. I've been a reader of Commonweal for a long time, and I'm thrilled to share this new podcast with you, whether you're a longtime reader yourself or just discovering it for the first time. You can find the Commonweal podcast on Spotify, Google Play, and Apple Podcasts, as well as on their website, commonwealmagazine.org slash podcast. That's commonwealmagazine.org slash podcast. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Stuart Brody about his recent book, The Law of Small Things, Creating a Habit of Integrity and a Culture of Mistrust. Well, so far in the conversation, we've been talking about adult behavior. But now I want to turn this more towards the family. If we want to cultivate integrity and a sense of duty in our children, what lessons can we pull from your book and from your teachings well, that's a really good question, and I don't directly deal with that in the book. So it's prompting some reflection. There are a lot of jokes about, I try to remember jokes, I'm really bad at it, but there are a lot of jokes about integrity, about ethics, and the way parents teach their children. So do you mind if I tell you a joke? Go ahead. Well, one of them, a simple one, is where... A boy in school gets sent to the principal because he was caught stealing pencils. And he comes home, and the father is very upset. And the father says to him, if you needed pencils, I can just take some from work. 
and he doesn't realize that. Another another one that's related to that is my my friend. Uh, he's a very accomplished ethicist. He was telling me that his father always would say, "Son, when I was a kid, people had integrity." And I'll, I'll give you an example. When I used to go to the to see the Brooklyn Dodgers, and you know, in Brooklyn, we would park our bikes right by the fence, sneak under the fence, get in, and when we came back, the bikes were still there. And Steve would say, but Dad, you snuck in. You stole the, the, the product of the Brooklyn Dodgers. He said, that's different. So what's really coming through, and I've got other jokes too like that. So, so what's, the reason they're funny is because the parent is presuming that they have wisdom about this. But what they're showing is that they submit to the same kind of convenience and in consequence that we're all guilty of. And what's amazing about children is they pick that up. They're so good at that 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 can last a long time. It's not inconsequential to them. And so you, you really ask a, an important question. Practice is everything when it comes to integrity. You practice not telling lies. So in the first story of the first chapter of the book, I talk about, well, if you're going to break a date and you're afraid to, that it's going to sound like it hurts someone and you're afraid to tell the truth, practice it. Write it out. Say it. Practice it. It sounds silly, right? But then you habituate yourself to saying the truth. And people will get that. And so that applies especially forcefully when it comes to kids. Well, and just to reemphasize a point that we brought up earlier in the conversation, this is the mechanism that you're talking about throughout the book, that notion of practicing, of, of doing it when it's not a great consequence, even something as simple as breaking a, a lunch date. You can't expect, if I may paraphrase, you can't expect that you will do the right thing in the life-saving situation when real courage is needed if you don't practice courage in the little things in everyday life. This seems to be the mechanism that you come back to again and again. It is, because it's the central teaching. And I think everybody knows it deep down, but it's convenience, as you pointed out, that makes it, well, you know, it, well, I don't have to do that. Because when it really counts, I'll show up. And people have said that to me. And people think that. We all think that. I'm going to ask your listeners to, to really think about that. Isn't that what you sometimes say? Well, I've got to get through this. I've got to survive this. It's a small thing. It's just a white lie. You snooze, you lose. All these cliches that we use to, to justify doing something for our own self-interest and ignoring our obligation. But the reality is that if you can't identify an obligation in a small thing, how are you going to be ready to do it? You know, it's sort of akin to a foundation, a crack in a foundation. You ignore it, next thing you know, your foundation has to be completely replaced. You can't patch it. You know, or think about a friend who doesn't show up on time. And it happens once, then it starts happening, and you don't trust that person anymore. You really don't trust them to ever show up on time. And that's a small thing. But isn't that what's happening with the way we look at our own government? Well, in this, I mean, if we think about then the rearing of children, how often is it that we don't do those daily reinforcements with our children, but then we're surprised when a large moral question, they're faced with a large moral question, and they fail the moral question. They fail to do the right thing in that situation. And it's because we ourselves, we haven't been reinforcing those little daily examples, both in our own lives 
and in the lives of, of, of just talking to them about what we expect them to do and to learn from these situations. Absolutely. It's, it's just so clear. And you asked me earlier, you know, what got me into this work? Because I could see how I was just slipping into a kind of survival mentality where whatever I needed to do to get by in a prestigious law firm or to advance myself politically. And then I realized that the whole structure was really foul because it was built on just a, a, a thousand little lies. And I started not liking myself. You know, lawyers start out, if you're lucky enough to get one of these big jobs in big law firms that require a, a lot of billable hours, people may be familiar with that concept. And I started out with the top, you know, top job in Chicago, I graduated from a great university in, on whose campus we're sitting. And I got a very fine job. And the managing partner told me how many hours were expected of me. And I thought, wow, that is a lot of hours. And I tried to do it lawfully. And I realized there's just no way I could bill that number of hours per month without cheating. So I didn't cheat. And I got called in on the carpet and told that I didn't have enough hours, but all the other associates did. So I felt bad. I felt like I needed to try harder. And little by little, I started finding ways to fudge. And this went on for several months, and I still couldn't do it. And the managing partner came in and he said, you're not meeting your hours. And I realized that all my colleagues were fudging. And this is what you, in the book, you call the culture of collusion for survival. Yeah, so exactly. everybody's covering for everybody else, even though everybody's doing the wrong thing. I mean, when we look at this in, a, in an organization, it's sometimes called a code of silence, isn't it? Yeah, because no one's ever going to find out. And after all, it's a small thing. And everybody does it. And everybody does it, and you have to do it. Yeah, you have to do it to survive, or at least yeah. that's what you're told. That's what you're told. And it seems that way because you're just starting out, and, and it, you're in a, a luxurious environment, and you want to really reap the benefits of this and the prestige of it. It's very hard for a young person to say, I'm just not going to do that. Now, they tell me that there are movements like that among younger people now, to, and they seem promising to me where truthfulness is, is important. My, you know, I'm an older person, and I'm saying no lie is inconsequential. There's no such thing. Every lie is an opportunity to expand the realm of your resourcefulness and the potential for authenticity. And any excuse to the contrary is just that. It's an excuse. I want to make sure I've understood you correctly. So anytime that you're faced with the possibility of committing a lie, that's an opportunity for you to dig deeper and to find ways to be more authentic. Isn't right. It? Yeah. That's exactly right. Even when two things to be, seem to be conflicting and you say, well, which is the greater good? Which is the priority? Well, okay, this could sound controversial, but I believe this, that in any situation in which you have more than one duty, both need to be addressed because they're duties, they're promises. And that puts people in excruciating positions, but the people who are resourceful enough to discern those duties 
have a leg up on the situation, and they're usually strong enough to understand how to at least honor both. You know, I have a story in the book, I want to tell you about this, where, you know, as you know, I have a quiz in the book, and it's 25 questions, and, and, and they're all about small things. And people can go online and take the quiz. And now I have several hundred, you know, examples since the book came out. And the hardest question, this is the hardest question. You're at a dinner party and someone asks your position on gun control and you have very strong views on it and you've stated them publicly. You're afraid to state them because you know that it'll spark a lively debate and uh, upset the host who invited you. What do you do? Half the people, split right up the middle, half the people say, I, I'm compelled to tell that my view. And the other half say, I'll refrain. Because of hospitality. Because For you're, hospitality. You're so a guest, yeah. what are the duties? Well, you have a duty of truthfulness. It's arguable to tell the truth. You're asked your opinion, so you tell. Okay. The other duty is of loyalty to the host. Okay, so they're conflicting. But how hard is it really to figure out an accommodation? You take the person aside and you say, you want to know my view? After the party, we'll sit down. I'll tell you my view. This is not the floor of the United States Senate. You know, you don't have to, you know, yield to your colleague and tell the truth, right? And your host expects you not to disrupt his or her party. So, you see, you can figure it out, but you have to figure it out. And the people with integrity spend a lot of time doing that. And that's kind of a message I'd like to leave uh, with your listeners about integrity, that take the time to figure out what the duties are, not just the thing that you promised explicitly, but what's implied in the situation. You didn't promise your host that you were going to refrain from any question. You didn't promise it. You didn't say, well, yes, I take a pledge not to disrupt your party by being controversial, but that's implied. And so, you know, think about that. Pay attention to what you do as a human being in the world. You're a truth machine. Now, if you want to subvert that, and subvert your power to, to connect to what's true and authentic and transforming in the world. Well, that's a terrible decision to make. And don't hide behind conventions either. Like, oh, I own stock. I don't have to, you know, that I can't be responsible for that. Be truthful in every way you can. So if you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dahl. We're speaking today with Stuart Brody about his recent book, The Law of Small Things, Creating a Habit of Integrity in a Culture of Mistrust. We'll be back in a moment. So for those of you that are longtime listeners to Things Not Seen, you may be aware that I do another show called The Francis Effect with my friend Dan Haran. He's a Franciscan priest. Every couple of weeks, he and I get together to bring you commentary on current events from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. Now, Dan, why should I be talking to you? Who are you? Who am I? I'm a Franciscan friar, a Roman Catholic priest, and a professor of theology here in Chicago. And that's a good question. I have no idea why you should be talking with me. But if people are interested in what a conversation between you, the otherwise uh, respectable host of Things Not Seen, and me, the not-so-respectable Roman Catholic priest and theologian, I think they should tune in. Yeah, they should definitely tune in. So that's The Francis Effect, and you can find it at francisfxpod.com. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Stuart Brody about his recent book, The Law of Small Things, Creating a Habit of Integrity in a Culture of Mistrust. 
Well, so far we've been speaking sort of in the abstract in a secular way about duty and about integrity. But a lot of my listeners are people of faith. I'm a person of faith. And if you're willing, I would love to explore a little bit about how you see the faith dimension of these kinds of questions of integrity and duty and honesty playing in. And maybe the way to start that is to ask, are you yourself a person of faith? Very much. Do you mind disclosing kind of how you see that faith walk? How do you describe yourself when you're asked this question? Well, for years, I uh, felt that I was uh, religious. And uh, in my particular case, it was in the Jewish faith. And I found the, the services, the normal services, the religious services, really kind of disappointing. I, I didn't feel like I was really connecting to God although I, I was moved by it, but I knew there was something deeper. And it was relatively late in life that I started to recognize that the, the key to alignment with God was the surrender of, really, of your ego to God. And that is very difficult because ego dominates our culture. Materialism is egoic. Our politicians are egoic. The corporations we talked about, they're so egotistical, they, they can't see either implied or even express explicit duties. So God requires something more. There's the light of God. And to be aligned with that, you, you can't do it in an abstract way. You can't technique your way to God. And so that may sound harsh to people who see religion as spirituality, but spirituality is deeper, I think, than religion. It's kind of the way integrity is deeper than ethics as a moral principle. So, so, so it, I surrendered to God. I, I mean, it's, that's the way I would look at it, you know, several years ago, and everything changes then. And when you use this phrase, surrendering to God, I mean— so, for example, the 12-step tradition would say that you imagine a higher power and you say that, you know, you're powerless over this problem. Let's say that the problem is dishonesty and you give that problem up to the, the higher power. Is that what you're talking about or would you characterize it differently? I would characterize it differently because I don't think it's an abdication of power. My whole book is about the fulfillment of your duty and that is power. But in that sense, you're a partner to God. See, I think what God, the surrender to God means this. It means not for yourself, but for sharing. You receive. You're grateful. Your gratitude is key. You receive so you can share. Receive so you can share. So a very wise rabbi taught me that. So everything is about contribution. And you can see that that falls directly into duty. And so instead of duty being the thing your parents tell you to do that you really don't want to do, (laughs) you know, or a school teacher telling you something or a boss, instead it becomes an opportunity to contribute. And in that sense, you are aligned with God because you're a partner with God. Now, the the problem or the the danger is to see God on your side no matter what you do just because you feel it. So the risk is to move from righteousness to self-righteousness. And that's ego. Yeah, yeah. So it's true that God will give you nothing that you can't handle. That's one way to put it. And what the struggles you have are for the best for your spiritual evolution. 
But that doesn't mean that anything you come up with, any belief you have or feeling you have, instinct or intuition, is God-driven. You can't take dialogue with God lightly. You have to be ready for it. Truthfulness is the way. You know, in the Hebrew tradition, the word commandments is not is not translated as, a, as commandments. The Ten Commandments are actually the Ten Speakings. Mm-hmm. That's the way it's translated in, in Hebrew. And that puts a different spin on the relationship. Instead of being commanded to do something, these are utterances of God inviting you to be connected to the divine in the execution of your duties. And so when... You know, I know you have a great audience of people who are spiritually minded, and that's so powerful to me because, to me, that's the seriousness that endows the search. You know, I think in this country what we're what we're having is a lot of people shooting their mouths off, you know. That is not God's work, and I would never call anything I do God's work because that's egotistical. But what I can do is strive to make the contribution that I believe is worthy of a connection to God. And that's all we can do. Integrity is hard because you're going to miss it. You're going to blow it. You're going to miss the mark. And God understands that. Probably the most important thing I could leave your listeners with is this. That there's no such thing as having integrity. You don't have integrity. You act with integrity. It's not a possession that you gain and then never lose. I know we use that lightly, but it's a misnomer. You don't just do integrity like a Nike commercial. You act with integrity in each particular situation. And there's a great moment in that if you're connected to God because there's a seriousness about it. You know, when I talk to God, if I can just be really personal, you don't show up haphazardly or quickly, you, you're ready because you know that that conversation is going to be very, very powerful. You can't shrink from it. And that's the way we need to look at truthfulness, you know, even on the white lie. What I love about what you're saying is so often in religious conversations, we worry about the hereafter and we do good now for the sake of some reward possibly that might come after death. That's not what I'm hearing you saying. Instead, even though there is a connection to the divine, I'm hearing clearly that your rootedness is in the present moment, the relationships that are in front of you, the, the worldliness of this. Am I hearing that correctly? Yes. And, and the reason that has resonance with spirituality and the connection to God is that God is in the past, the present, and the future, and it all congeals in now, whatever your belief about the hereafter. Well, Stuart Brody, I was convicted when I read your book. I think it's it's an amazing example for how we might go about practically living an ethical life. And what I want to just make sure that the listeners know is that there's no highfalutin technical language here. You're using real-world examples with very simple language to show how this is possible in our everyday lives. And I just want to thank you again for taking the time to speak to us today. My pleasure. Thank you very much for this opportunity. We've been speaking today with Stuart Brody. He's the founder of Integrity Intensive, a consulting firm 
concentrating on decision-making. He also does leadership training around the practice of integrity. He had a 35-year career as a lawyer, and he held numerous public offices. He's advised presidential candidates, and his speeches and workshops have brought his work to thousands of public officials across the country. Today, we've been discussing his recent book, The Law of Small Things, Creating a Habit of Integrity in a Culture of Mistrust. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park, here on the south side of Chicago. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC is responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Kijit. Our show is made possible in part through the generosity of our supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and to find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.